episode 21 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Russell Carlton. Russell is a writer for Baseball Perspectives. You can give him a follow on Twitter at PizzaCutter4. Russell, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, thanks for being had. Well, let's start with were Pizza Cutter 1, 2, and 3 already taken? <laughs> well, 4 is my favorite number. So, you know, actually, I originally I went for Pizza Cutter, but somebody else got that. And I thought, okay, well, I, I need to throw something on the end of this, and 4 is my favorite number. So Pizza Cutter 4 became, became. Russell, let's start at the beginning. Baseball-wise, tell me what initially attracted you to the game in the first place. June 7th, 1986, I mark that day uh, every year as the day I went to my first game and my, my dad said, Hey, you want to go to a game? And, oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I'd kind of been in, I was six years old and, um, little, uh, gotten to start to be a little baseball crazy. And I went and I, uh, saw my uh, beloved Indians, uh, lose really bad because it was the mid eighties and they were really bad back then. But, um, I, I was hooked from, from the very first game. And I, uh, my mom says that, uh, when I was a kid, she actually learned about baseball just so she could talk to me. So, um, that was, uh, I, I'm one of those guy, one of those guys who was just hooked from the very, very, very early days. We all grew up with wins and RBI. How did you get introduced into more advanced statistics? You know, I, I, I was, um, reading, uh, you know, books like, uh, Moneyball, obviously, and, uh, Baseball Between the Numbers, which was put out by, um, Baseball Prospectus a number of years ago. And, uh, you know, starting to, to dabble around in that. And I remember reading some of the, the the things that they did. And at the time, I was in uh, graduate school, and I uh, had a background in statistics and numbers and and things like that. And I remember reading and thinking, wait a minute, I know how to do that. Not in a this is garbage, uh, the, the, this I could do that. It was wait a minute, I I know how to do this. And there are people actually in baseball who get you know publicity and get to write and be on be online and. Um, and, and be in front offices because they know how to do that. And I thought, wow, I want, I want to do that. So actually I started, um, I, I started about as, uh, basic as you can get. I went and I opened up my own blog spot and, um, got picked up by, uh, another uh, network that doesn't exist anymore. And, uh, eventually, uh, wound up at uh, prospectus working with the same people who, uh, whose work I'd read, uh, a few years earlier and had gotten me into it. Russell, at one point you were employed by the Cleveland Indians. Tell me about how that opportunity came to be for you and what kind of things you were doing for them. <laughs> well, I can tell you the first part and the second part. I'll have to be a little evasive. You might understand that. But um, what happened was that uh, I was finishing up uh, uh, in grad school. I, uh, my training is a, a clinical psychologist. And the last thing you do in a, a clinical psychology intern- uh, program is do an internship. And so for a year... I spent 40 hours a day or 40 hours a week. It felt like 40 hours a day um, working as a therapist and uh, working with, uh, with clients and uh, uh, you know, all the things that uh, a therapist does. And what I learned from that experience is that there was no way that I wanted to spend the next 40 years being a therapist. And so what I did was I, uh, uh, my wife said, well, you've always loved the baseball thing and I'd been writing about it for a while. And so I, I literally, I went and I uh, got some of my, uh, my best stuff and uh, put uh, put together 30 packets and 30 uh, letters and um, sent them off to 30 teams and got a couple of uh, a couple of very nice uh, rejection letters. Um, but uh, sure enough, uh, Keith Wolner from the Indians uh, gave me a call and said, "Hey, uh, would you be interested in talking?" And I said, "Sure." And the kicker is that at the time I was living in the city of Cleveland, 
And when we did the uh, the interview, I was uh, I was able to see the light standards of Jacobs Field uh, from uh, uh, from where I, I was uh, standing. I said, hey, you know, I could I could walk over and uh, do this. And it's your hometown team too, the team you grew up loving. That's uh, yeah, awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I and to this day, I I am an Indians fan. I you know, uh, it's part of being from Cleveland. And uh, you know, I uh, got in touch with them, and they they you know, I mean, obviously, I have some uh, some non-disclosure things as far as what I can say that I did for them. But um, it's interesting. They you know, they would give me kind of a broad topic and say, hey, you know, what uh, what kind of things are you thinking on this topic? And we'd kind of go back and forth and say, okay, they'd say, oh, no, we, we don't, we're not really interested in that aspect of it. Or, you know, we've already done some work on that. But then there would be other things they'd say, yeah, go for it. And just really explore that. And it was really cool because, you know, as opposed to writing in the, uh, the outside world where you have to have something uh, done every week, uh, you could just kind of go really deep into something. And you come up with some really, really interesting things when you have time to, to really, really dig into them. We are just about at the quarter point through the mm-hmm. baseball season. You wrote a piece recently at BP examining when statistics start to stabilize. What did you discover? Well, it's an update of a piece that I actually wrote, oh gosh, five, six years ago, which just makes me feel old. But it was a uh, looking at, okay, well, one of the things that uh, the old statistics and research methodology professor and me would say is, well, what... Uh, uh, when when can we be reasonably sure that this is a reliable measure? And so, you know, I was looking at uh, for, you know, hitters and then for pitchers, uh, when are some of the stats that we have? Well, when, when does it get uh, beyond small sample size? And in research parlance, when is it a reliable sample? And so I started running some, some methodology, and um, it turns out that it really depends on what stat you're talking about. If it's something like strikeout rate or... Uh, walk rate, those tend to stabilize pretty quickly. And I think that most people who, are, who have read a little bit on sabermetrics, for example, know about BABIP, or betting average on balls in play. That takes a lot longer to stabilize. Um, so it's, uh, it really will depend on what's the stat. The thing that I always caution people about in, in here is that, um, you know, I, I'll, hear my, I'll hear that study referenced around this time. And I, I always caution people. I say, well, it might not be what you think it means. What it is is that that's a point where you can look back and say, okay, over the last 50 or 100 or whatever it is, plate appearances, we can be pretty sure that over those 100, 100 or 50 or whatever plate appearances that are now gone and in history, we can be pretty sure that this guy's strikeout rate was, you know, nine per nine innings or whatever. But let's be careful not to project that too far out into the future. What it is is that he, he has done that, and it's a pretty good uh, assumption that he'll continue to do it, but you have to be careful that you don't put too much faith in that assumption. So what are things that tend to stabilize quickly, and what are things that tend to take a long time? <laughs> the, the rule of thumb, I was talking to uh, Baseball Prospectus uh, Editor-in-Chief Ben Lindbergh. He, asked, he was asking me a version of this question, and I said, you know, the, the best way to, to do it is the more things the ball has to bounce off of, the, the uh the slower it stabilizes. So something like, for example, swing rate for batters, how often you swing. Well, the batter gets to completely control that decision, whether or not he decides to swing. And so wouldn't you know it, it stabilizes very, very quickly. Um, something like extra base hit rate, uh, doubles and triples, you know, that has to fly out of the pitcher's hand, bounce off the bat, bounce off the outfield wall, 
into the glove and, and make its way back into the infield. So kind of the more moving parts there are, the more, you know, the further the ball gets uh, away from the, uh, the pitcher's glove in that, uh, in that transact or that uh, train of uh, happenings, it's a, it's a lot slower to, uh, to stabilize. So, you know, if you're looking at, if you want to look at what we've kind of gotten past the small sample size part of, you want to look at things that are kind of very basic outcomes. Uh, how, how often a batter swings, how often a pitcher uh, records a strikeout, something along those lines. And then some of those other ones, you know, even we get to the end of the season and um, I can't uh, with good confidence say that, hey, this is a, a big enough sample size to where I, f- I put uh, uh, faith in its reliability. Some of the players that we're commenting on right now who are off to hot starts are people like Chris Davis, Starlin Marte, Patrick Corbin. I wonder, do different caliber of players stabilize at different rates? When you think about it, it's, it's just kind of a shorter jump to go from Cabrera hitting, and I forget what exactly he hit last year, but um, you know, 330, 340, whatever it was, to 380 than, than somebody else who you know, is a career 260 hitter. And you're like, well, you know, that, that is 120 points. Why? How do I square that with, uh, with my past experience of him? People have a tendency to kind of cut the sample size at opening day. And it's not like the, you know, the 700 or so plate appearances that Miguel Cabrera had last season have gone away. They are still fairly well reflective of his, his talents at this point, unless there's been some sort of injury or something. And so, you know, we have that history to, to, to work from. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that is all part of, his, of the information that we have available on him. You know, you, you think about um, you think about uh, having as much data as possible that you can uh, uh, you can pull from, and you know, walking into a season, it's not like uh, Miguel Cabrera just kind of hits the reset button and uh, you know becomes an average player or something like that. You know, he's still he's still Miguel Cabrera. So yeah, if he's scuffling and he's hitting 230, then you know we're kind of like, well, where'd that come from? Then of course, what's wrong? And, uh, you know, that's, that, that takes uh, um, some time. It's a natural human reaction and, and a good statistical reaction to take a look at the guys who have changed the most and wonder, now, wait a minute, what's going on here? And it's interesting because a lot of those guys, regression, regression takes hold. But sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you see Jose Batista or what Edwin Encarnacion did last year. Sometimes those guys who you expect to regress end up becoming good players. Well, you know, the thing is that... And I think this is a mistake that um, even some very statistically savvy people make is that we kind of assume that, you know, we that we know what a guy is from day to day and that a guy kind of stays steady. He's never going to change. He's he's not going to develop. And I think that that's an assumption that's kind of sneakily built into a lot of the things that we assume when we, we talk about players. You know, he is a 30 homer guy. And as if that's something that's written in stone, that, that he will, um, that's just kind of part of who he is as a human being. And, you know, the guys grow, they develop, they learn, they learn new tricks, they figure things out, they have aha moments. It's actually, I mean, my, my background is in child psychology. I always liken it to um, the way that children learn. You know, you might get, and I have, I have uh, two daughters, and I, I will see them on one day be struggling with something, some puzzle or something that they're trying to put together. And then the next day, uh, my daughter's sitting there and just kind of going, put, dit, 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 and then all the puzzle pieces are right where they should be. You know, people grow and develop and major league hitters are, and pitchers are no different. And so, you know, when we, uh, uh, I think one of those, um, one of those great uh, sabermetric projects is figuring out, okay, well, um, how do we tell people who, uh, um, 
who are just, you know, having a, uh, a flash in the pan sort of, you know, 60, anybody can hit uh, anything in 60 plate appearances uh, versus guys who have actually grown and developed in some way. Um, I think, you know, teasing that out is one of those, uh, one of those Holy grails that I think that uh, um, if somebody out there has an answer to, you've got a, a million dollars and a lovely job in a, in a front office waiting for you. Another piece you have up at BP is examining the value a good hitting coach can provide. How much of an impact can a good hitting coach make on a team, and where can you see their value? The the hitting coach piece, I actually I estimated. I said, okay, let's you know take away guys that have a short track record. Let's because uh, you know there's there can be all kinds of fluky things that happen, um, and and that's another case of small sample size. And uh, the guy I settled on was Kevin Seitzer, um, who. Um, as, after I read that, I went, wait a minute, Kevin Seitzer, he got fired by the, the Royals last year. And I estimated that uh, Seitzer was adding um, something like uh, 50 runs worth of value um, to, uh, to the hitters that he was working with over what would be like an average uh, hitting coach. And, you know, some of the math that, that goes into that is a little, uh, a little hard to explain just kind of uh, over the air but it's based on the same type of math that we use to rate teachers. And I said, okay, well, you know, a hitting coach has his students and he's going to uh, work with them. And of course, you know, if he gets a, um, he inherits a bunch of guys who are all 230 hitters and raises them to 260 hitters, the results might not be pretty on the field, but Hey, he added, you know, 30 points worth of average or OBP or whatever it is uh, to the, uh, to the, uh, to these hitters. That's pretty good. And imagine what he could do with guys who actually had some talent. And, uh, you know, you can actually, in terms of where you, you see that improvement, um, it's something that, you know, I did kind of an overall kind of very rough hewn measure, um, just kind of in the, in the aggregate of, okay, all of these people here um, that are under, uh, under him. And I did something similar with pitching coaches. But, uh, you know, you, you might, uh, you can, you can take a look at any skill you want and run the same kind of analysis and find out, okay, well, what kind of uh, effect are we really looking at here? What, uh, uh, how, how can we find it? And, um, you know, maybe there are some guys that are good at some things and, uh, you know, teaching hitters how not to strike out and others are good at teaching guys how to hit home runs. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's, that's something we, again, there's more research to be done out there. Your research showed that hitting coaches appear to have much more of an effect on whether or not hitters take a more aggressive or more passive approach at the plate, and they can teach them pitch selectivity, which is kind of fascinating when you think about guys who walk a lot that's ingrained in them in the minors, and the guys with a high on-base percentage in the minors, that tends to be one, one of those things that translate in the majors, that a 30-year-old player can see a benefit in his walk rate from a hitting coach, that's extremely valuable. Well, I mean, you think about, um, you know, again, and this gets into... Um, some some of those stats and how quickly they stabilize. If you're a if you're a hitter, you can you you kind of give up some control once that ball hits the bat because it's got wind and gravity and and whatever the you know whatever spin the pitcher put on it and how you know how square you hit it and all that. But you can control whether or not you decide to swing, and you have quite a bit of control over how good your uh, your eye at the plate for telling that's a ball that's a strike. And I should swing at that one. I shouldn't swing at that one. You can kind of piece the pull those apart. Um, and so, you know, when I when I took a look, I said, well, you know, um, it looks like there are certain uh, uh, certain uh, hitting coaches where, um, hey, you know, they're pretty good at uh, uh, at teaching guys, you know, balls and strikes. 
And there's some guys who are just uh, who are just saying, hey, swing a lot less or, hey, swing a lot more. And, you know, that might be the, the exact thing that a player needs to hear. And uh, you might need to swing less or swing more. Um, but that's a different skill than being able to, you know, more accurately, hey, you know, in, in an ideal world, you let the bad ones go by and you, you take the nice hanging curveball and deposit it in left field seats. So in general, what would a bad hitting coach do? A bad hitting coach <laughs> has what kind of impact You're on right, their hitters? They tell you to hit left-handed, you know? <laughs> uh, probably a bad hitting coach would just not be as, as effective in teaching the skills. I mean, they're all roughly aiming for the same, um, the same outcomes. I think one of the one of the tricks that uh, that people will need to, and, and this is you know further research down the road, that my my piece was just kind of a first stab at it. Um, the I think something that we'll need to learn is how to match a pitching coach with a pitcher. Um, so in, in in the same way that you know if you think about how uh, how some people learn, some people are visual learners, some people are auditory learners, some people learn by doing, and you kind of want to match. Uh, a pitching coach or a teacher with the the way that uh, that that person learns, and I think some of that matching is something that's uh, um, that you know I I, I think there's a uh, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of work to be done there. And if you know you think about it, I think it's one of the reasons that you see teams now going to uh, two hitting coaches. You know, maybe you have two guys with two different styles of teaching, and some players are going to feel more comfortable with some and. Uh, some with the, the other, and and that's fine. So long as uh, they're getting better, then you know that's uh, that's uh, that's something that uh, teams can take advantage of. You estimated that a good hitting coach could add two wins to a team. That's rather significant. And if a good pitching coach could do the same thing, maybe a good manager gets you two wins as well. You're talking about six wins you could get just from your managing staff. And if you think about it, those guys make uh, you know kind of uh, some of them might make uh, six figures. And uh, and when you think about what the cost of a, a win on the free agent market is, and you know the number that usually gets thrown around is five or six million. And uh, you know for um, for hiring you know a good pitching coach and a good hitting coach, and maybe you have to pay them a million dollars. But um, if uh, uh, if you're paying a million dollars for uh, you know for a hitting coach and a pitching coach and pulling in four wins. You know, that's two million bucks to buy you four wins, and that's a heck of a lot uh, better value than you get on the the free agent market. And you haven't burned any roster spots. The two hitting coach approach is something that's becoming more popular. And I wonder if coaches are going to become so specialized, it's going to become like football: offensive coordinators, special teams, defensive back coaches, linebackers coaches. They have a coach for every position, and I wonder if that's what we're going to see. Right-handed hitting coach, left-handed hitting coach, guys who like to. Uh, pull the ball coach, you know, and, and, you know, when you think about it, you know, we put, we talk about the hitting coach, but it's not like he's operating in isolation. You know, there are, uh, there's the minor league staff that's been working with these guys and obviously they have uh, video assistants and, and things of that nature. I'm sure that, uh, you know, they'll, um, they'll, they'll call other people up. And so, you know, it's, it, 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 yes, there's one guy who are and now sometimes two who have the title of hitting coach, but it's not like that's the only guy who can help the players with their hitting. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, there, there's always going to be something of an informal system of, uh, uh, of, uh, of experts to help you out. Um, and that's uh, maybe we're just kind of moving to a, an era where that's going to be a little bit more formalized. John Heyman has been tweeting a lot recently about some of his problems with wins above replacement. Your colleague, Colin Wires, wrote a lengthy piece defending some of his objections. What are the limitations with warp or wins above replacement right now? One of the big ones, and Colin wrote about this, and I, I wrote a companion piece that uh, 
Colin actually shared with his rough draft with me, so I got a little early peek at it. But um, the uh, John was uh, was concerned about um, the defensive metrics that uh, that we use to kind of quantify defense because you know warp is hitting uh, defense and uh, base running for uh, for hitters. And uh, he was pointing out, well, you know, his his example was uh, Starling Marte versus Bryce Harper a couple of weeks ago. We're running uh, neck and neck, and I think they both had uh, 1.7 wins or something like that. And, uh, you know, um, Hayden was saying, well, wait a minute, Harper's obviously hitting a lot better. What gives? How can they be equal? And, well, okay, let's look and let's say uh, you drill down and you see that uh, uh, the defensive metrics were loving Marte. Well, something that happens there is that, you know, again, getting back to that reliability thing, the, uh, the offensive metrics that we have stabilize a lot faster than the defensive metrics. So what you have is you have kind of a, uh, a pastiche um, stat like war. You've got um, one component that we have, you know, much more rely or much more faith in, which is the offensive part, which is where Bryce Harper was doing so much better versus one that we have less faith in, um, which is the defensive part where we would say, well, you know, where Marte was picking up his value. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I think indirectly um, John was kind of getting at that and, you know, in looking at that and, and Colin and I talking behind the scenes and he said, well, you know, he's right. You know, it's um, how can we um, stand here and say, you know, war is this, uh, this, uh, this perfect stat, which you know, nothing is when, uh, when you've got this problem of, you know, the parts are, uh, you know, they aren't all equal to each other in terms of their reliability. And so you have to treat Marte's numbers with a little bit more suspicion than you do Harper's. But at the end of the day, people just look at that, uh, that scoreboard and say, Oh, they each have 1.7 wins. They're both, uh, they're equal to each other. And so, you know, that's kind of the limits of, uh, of warp that, uh, that's been coming out lately. And that's, you know, that's something that, um, you know, it, it's far from saying that, that uh, war is useless. It's just saying that, you know, there's a, there's a problem. There's more to do. Yeah, and I think that's totally fair and reasonable. I actually had Ben Jeglovic on a few episodes ago, and he was explaining DRS from uh, Baseball Info Solutions. And, you know, it yeah. seems like they have a very sophisticated system as to how they're measuring defense. I do trust the reliability of the commonly used defensive metrics, but I question if they're being weighted properly. It isn't so much the weighting that I'm I'm, I'm worried about. You know, DRS. I you know I've, I've I understand their methodology, and and from what I you know when I've talked to them and and read about what they're doing, and and it's not that I question the method that they use to get to where they're going. And if you were to you know, kind of from the ground up, say, okay, we've got this kind of data set and we know, you know, how hard the ball was hit and what it was hit and how far the, um, the, the fielder had to go and, and things like that. You say, okay, well, you know, that you could, you could make a system out of that. And generally the, the assumptions that they make are, um, are pretty good. The problem isn't the waiting because the waiting is in runs and, you know, a run is a run is a run is a run. You save a run from scoring, you know, that is as valuable to the team as a, uh, a run that, uh, uh, that you, if you had a home run. But uh, at the same time, it's just a matter of there's just so much more noise in measuring defense and in measuring and uh, um, in how quickly that, uh, that stabilizes that it's just, you know, it's, it's not a, uh, 
it's not through any fault of, of BIS or uh, the people who do the fielding Bible um, or the people who do these defensive systems. It's just a matter of fielding's just really hard to get a, a good solid read on in a small sample size. You use the word assumption. Do you think that's what BIS is doing with DRS? Do you think they're making assumptions on a player's level of defensibility? Well, you know, it's hard to put words in their mouth. I, um, the thing that would would scare me is that if somebody took, um, you know, a, a six weeks worth of baseball and said, okay, you know, this guy has uh, has saved ten runs, and then assume that that's going to continue for the rest of the season, um, you know, again, that's just uh, that's where you get into reliability, and that's. Um, I, I don't. I don't think that they're making um, they're making inappropriate assumptions. I think that um, they're just working with a stat that uh, that takes a while to really shake itself out. And you know, I'm hoping that I and I haven't you know spoken to anybody about this particular issue, but I'm hoping that they would say something like, "Yeah, you know, it's um, we can tell you what happened uh, on the field. We can give you an estimate of what that's been worth. But as far as that predicting what's going to happen for the rest of the year." Uh, we don't know. Is BP's defensive metric capable of doing that? BP's met- metric has the same uh, the same limitations. There's only so many ways to really create a good uh, defensive metric at this point, given the data that we have available uh, to us. And I mean, BP has some proprietary data that uh, that we use, but um, it's something that uh, you know is 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 kind of baked into the cake, if you will. It's something that uh, we gotta we we just gotta live with. How far away are we from reliable and accurate defensive metrics? Oh, good God. Uh, <laughs> publicly, um, I don't know. I, I will put it to you this way. It would take a radical change in the type of data that are publicly available uh, for something like that to happen. Now, there's a, a, a product out there called FieldFX um, that has kind of been teased here and there, and this is – um, if, if your listeners are familiar with pitch FX that tracks the ball and spits out all kinds of you know fun things about velocity and spin and movement and uh, where across the plate and does all that sort of thing. There's a, a system that is, is known as field FX, um, and there's questions as to whether or not that will or will not ever be made public, but uh, that one tracks all, uh, all nine fielders and then tracks the ball and then at that point, you could kind of see, okay, exactly how far did this guy have to run? Did he make the catch? Would he be able to? Um, and, a, you know, and what's his kind of maximum range? And, in, in, you know, what was the hang time of the ball? Things like that. And that's right now, it's just data that we don't have available to, to really play around with. Um, so in that case, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just something that we're going to have to live with. The other limitation is, is, is very real is that, um, you're talking about uh, a very small set of uh, of plays that sets one fielder apart from another. You know, you think about a ground ball to shortstop. You know, some if it's hit right at the shortstop, anybody, any live human being who is standing there could feel the ball and throw it over. And then there's some of them that you know nobody's going to get to. It's just you know it's up the middle, it's right over the second base bag. It's just you know that happens. Um, it's kind of a, a small radius that sets apart Brendan Ryan from Derek Jeter. 
Jeter has enough of a sample size as a poor defender that I think we can confidently say he's a poor defender. Ryan has enough of a sample size as being a great defender that I think we can confidently say that he's a great defender. However, Jeter's track record is with offense, which is much more stable and easier to measure, and Ryan's track record is with defense. So it does make you think, well, what's more reliable? I mean, Jeter's offensive numbers are real, and we think Ryan's are real. We're pretty confident about it. There is that doubt, which I think is reasonable. Well, you think about, you know, the, the rule of thumb that I most often hear is that you need about three seasons worth of, of data on defense to really pin a guy down on his defensive ability. And usually we're, you know, we're trained to think about one season at a time. And, you know, we, we talk in terms of seasons, but, you know, you have to kind of take a little bit longer view on, uh, on defense. And so, you know, you think about, you know, and you mentioned, and of course, Derek Jeter's been um, haunting my dreams as, a, as an Indians fan since uh, 1996. <laughs> But, uh, you know, that's, uh, um, and, and, you know, Ryan has been in, in the league a few years and he's, um, he's shown himself to be, you know, quite good with the glove and quite not so good with the bat. But, you know, that's, uh, that's something that uh, um, I think that teams had about I don't know, five years ago um, had said, okay, you know, there's an, uh, an inefficiency here of, uh, of guys who, uh, who are good on defense because, you know, there were, just weren't any good defensive metrics at all available um, to kind of pick apart the, the good ones from the bad ones. And, uh, you know, that's kind of that's an inefficiency that's closing right now. Do you think front offices are using UZR or DRS to measure a player's fielding ability? Do you think they look at that at all? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, um, you know, you talk to front office people and they'll tell you that they uh, they go to prospectus and they go to fan graphs and they'll um, they'll look that up, and a lot of them are going beyond that, and they've, you know, have their own uh, their own things in place where they'll, um, uh, you know, they'll contract out and they'll get some uh, some deeper things. And, you know, I mentioned that field effect stuff, and that's something that um, certainly that's a product that uh, that they can leverage for their own uh, uh, their own uh, research. You wrote a piece during the off season about the Verducci effect. For those that don't know what that is, Sports Illustrated columnist Tom Verducci proposed a theory that young pitchers, 25 years old and younger, who have significant innings increases from one year to the next, which he defines as 30 innings, are more likely to get injured the following season. On its surface, Verducci's theory seemed to be correct, but when you dug deeper, what did you find? I found it wasn't true. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it it sounds, to say it out loud, you think, okay, you've got a young arm, you're pushing him well beyond something he's done before in terms of innings pitched. And, you know, we, pitching is, is a, is an unnatural act. It's a violent motion. It's, you know, call it, use whatever you want to say. And, you know, pitchers get hurt. And it turns out though, that, you know, when you look at, um, when you look at the, the percentage of guys who fall into that category of, you know, 25 or younger and a 30 plus uh, inning increase in their workload, but then you compare them to another group of 25-year-olds who didn't have that increase. They actually get hurt at about the same rate. It's not the innings increase that, uh, uh, that gets you. It's being a pitcher is the problem. And, you know, this is, this is one of those cases where um, I, I used to teach research methods at the, at the undergrad level. And, you know, this is, this is one of those cases where I said, well, you know, th- there's just a lack of a good control group here. And, you know, you can look at a, a list of guys and go, oh, wow, yeah. A lot of those guys got hurt, but then you don't look at the other list of guys who are of the same age but didn't have that um, that, that inning jump, and you could say, oh, a lot of those guys got hurt too, and then you could compare them statistically and say, well, you know, this when you look at it, there's just no 
association between that uh, that effect and 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 there's and uh, um, uh, the control group. So. And one of the things you noted, too, is that Verducci's theory doesn't account for pitchers in his group that already have a previous injury history. Those players are more likely to get injured anyway. Yeah, they are. And I, you know, I did some follow up stuff and I um, in looking at it and I um, I drew on some of my uh, in, in my real life. I'm a, uh, I work in uh, mental health research and some public health stuff. And I said, OK, well, this is this is an injury database. So this is this is what I do on a regular basis. So uh, let me see what what are good predictors of. Uh, of injury, and it turns out that you know not only is and, and this this kind of makes sense that uh, uh, a previous injury is uh, the best predictor of a future injury. You know, if you got a guy who's walking around with uh, uh, with damage to his elbow or his shoulder, you're gonna he's walking around with a damaged shoulder, and he's still doing that pitching thing. Which um, I you know, if there's one thing I would tell all major league teams, it's stop having your pitchers throw pitches, and they'll be a lot healthier for it. But when you have, you know, the the, um, the problem uh, gets into well, um, it, it's not only just um, an injury predicts an injury; it's a specific body part injury. So if you have elbow uh, injury, you're much more likely to have an elbow injury in the future, and not so much. There's a little bit of an increase in terms of a shoulder injury in the future. Um, but it seemed to be very body body part specific when I looked at it. So what do we know about keeping pictures healthy? How can an organization actually reasonably go about keeping their pictures healthy? Well, you know, one thing you want to do is uh, the second best predictor I saw was, was the number of pitches that were thrown. And, you know, that's, that's just the old how many times you repeat that violent motion of pitching. It's going to slowly add up over time. And so one thing that, um, th- that a lot of people have been talking about in terms of, you know, pitch counts and pitcher abuse and things of that nature, and, you know, that's something that can have a real effect. You can have, for example, um, a guy who um, in the, you know, the eighth inning, a, a starter in the eighth inning of a, a 14 to two game, and he's, you know, he's cruising along. Um, but if he's at a hundred pitches, you know, you might want to say, oh, well, you know, we'll send him out there and save the bullpen. Um, or something like that, or maybe you want to, um, you got a, an ace who you really want to ride uh, uh, into, you know, and, and finish off this game or something like that. It's a close game and you don't have such good bullpen. Well, you might be uh, pushing him beyond uh, what he can really handle. And, and, and it might be over time that, um, you know, that wear and tear just keeps building up and he's going to burn out a lot quicker than you would hope. So, you know, you, you get it today, but you eventually have to pay for it tomorrow. Yeah, and it's one of those things where relievers actually get injured at a higher rate than starters. And I wonder if teams are misusing bullpens altogether. Instead of pitching relievers three days in a row, does it make sense to pitch a reliever for two innings and then use them again for three more games? Well, then you also have to think about, you know, relievers. You know, we we have this illusion that, you know, a reliever, when he comes into the game, it's just as if he's suddenly woken up and he's like, oh, oh, here I am. I'm on the mound. What do you know? I was just napping five minutes ago. You know, he was... (laughs) Uh, he's been warming up and he's been, um, he, he, you know, he threw a number of pitches in the bullpen to, to, to get himself warm and he should. Um, but there's, there's that aspect of it. But, you know, the other thing with, um, with relievers is that if you look at the, uh, at, at the trend lately has been much more toward, uh, toward power arms and, uh, and sinker ballers and, and, 
uh, in, in the bullpen. And it used to be just be, you know, you had one guy who was the, the official closer who could throw 95. And now it seems like teams have like four or five guys who throw 95 out of the bullpen and they're all coming in. And, you know, that's, that's wonderful. If you can, uh, if you have the arm strength and, and you have the mechanical, uh, uh, fluidity and, and cleanliness to, to be able to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, I wonder if part of that is just kind of the, um, the, the pitchers who are selected, to be in the bullpen are just more uh, the guys who are, you know, doing much more uh, risky things with their arms in terms of throwing uh, really, really hard. Russell, what statistics do you think are commonly misused? All of them. (laughs) (laughs) I asked Tom Tango that. He said the same thing. He said everything gets misused. Well, here's, here's the issue is that every statistic tells a story. The problem is that you want to make sure that the statistic that you're looking at is answering the question or, the, or tells the story that you want to hear. Um, and that's, that's something that uh, um, I think that, that people want to put their own agenda on, you know, what this stat means and, and, uh, and, and say, okay, well, what, um, you know, what, <laughs> what, what, what I think it means and what I want it to mean. Um, you know, if you think about it, I mean, there's, there's kind of the old uh, – um, sabermetricians are, are big on, you know, pitcher wins being vastly, vastly overrated in terms of um, their, their utility. And because, you know, a win tell answers the question, how many times did a guy go at least five innings uh, and have his team score more runs than he gave up and he left the game, or if, if he left the game, his team didn't uh, either give up the lead or his bullpen didn't give up. And, and I mean, you kind of get into the, the, the convoluted thing that goes into what a winning, uh, winning pitcher is. And then you go, well, wait a minute, why would I even want to know the answer to that question? And so, you know, if you think about how to use a statistic uh, appropriately, um, you want a statistic that has uh, good reliability. And again, that stabilization stuff that we were talking about earlier, but also that has good validity. It actually answers the question that is actually important to whatever uh, whatever thing you're you're looking at right now. I sometimes worry that we in the sabermetric community are just broadcasting to ourselves. That there's a small group of people who are interested in this, and that's who consumes this information. How can we all do a better job presenting information to the masses? I want to challenge that that assumption there in terms of. You know, there it's a it's a small group of kind of hobbyists that are all just on Twitter talking to each other, and I mean there is a certain element of that. But I will say that this is something that is valued in major league front offices. And, sure. You, know, I meant, you mentioned my my work with the Indians, and I'm, you know, I am I am somebody who started off on a little blog and ended up say being able to say I have a I have a paycheck that has a major league team's name in the left hand corner, and you know that was that was really cool. So, you know, I, it isn't something that has gone unnoticed, but I think, you know, in terms of the broader public and how to, uh, how to work from that, I think that one of the things that I, when I, when I taught statistics in, at the undergrad level is that a lot of times when people try to explain statistics and, you know, whether this is baseball or otherwise, they just kind of, uh, they forget that the other person might not know what they're talking about. And so, you know, I would, um, I, one of my favorite things to do is on the first day, I would write this big expansive formula on the board and I'd say, okay, memorize that. And they all go, oh, what are you doing to me? 
And I would, uh, I'd say, no, no, no. Once you learn how to read this, you, you're, you'll be okay. And, and I would walk them through. And, and at the end of this, the, the quarter, I would write that same formula on board. And I'm like, what's that? And they're like, oh, it's a correlation formula. I'm like, yep, that's it. And I'm like, explain it to me. And they go, oh, well, you know, you use some of X, some of Y, and X, Y. And, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I would say that we as sabermetricians have a, an obligation that if we're going to be taken seriously, that it is our job then to, uh, to educate people and not in a condescending way. It's, you know, it's just something that um, people just haven't learned yet. And that's fine. You know, I, we all started off somewhere. We're all beginners at some point. And, you know, I was a beginner at some point and, you know, I had to learn a little bit over time, but it has to be something that's done humbly. It has to be something that's done um, meeting people where they are. And a lot of it has to do with just accepting the fact that people might be honestly curious about it, but that, uh, you know, they just haven't had the exposure yet. And we can't, uh, we can't look at them and say, oh, well, <laughs> you... You heathen you, you know. <laughs> well, it's interesting because, of course, sabermetrics and analytics have made an impact in front offices across the game. But in terms of how the press, the mainstream media covers baseball, two notable examples that have happened recently. We had Mike Trout and Miguel Cabrera, the MVP debate last year, and we have yep. the Jack Morris Hall of Fame debate. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the more numbers and the more information that has become available with Morris showing that he is not does not meet Hall of Fame standards, the more his votes have increased. I can't think about how many articles I read about why Mike Trout should be the MVP. And of course I agreed with this, but all of the articles that came out, he got, what did he get, four votes? There, was, four no, place votes, yeah. there was no impact made there. Well, I mean, let's, let me, good therapist that I used to be, let me turn that around. Mike Trout got four first place votes in a year where we had the first triple crown winner in uh, what it was 50 year or 40 something years, 67 or yeah. Well, okay. Something, yeah. Since 1967, since, uh, since Yaz did it. And um, so, you know, in, in a, in a year where this, you know, and, and you know, we, we could talk about batting average and RBIs and how, how those have their, their flaws, but um, you know, those are, that still holds quite a bit of cultural sway. And the fact that, um, you know, people were were understanding that, hey, you know, Trout had a really, really good year, and and some and there were four guys out of what 32 that were able to say or that were willing to say, yeah, and he had a better year than did um, than did Cabrera. I I'm, I was actually kind of happy with that. I mean, I wish it would have been more, but um, that's that's a pretty good start given that you know it's only been oh gosh what 10 years since Moneyball came out, and that this idea. Uh, much less kind of the the full understanding of of some of the calculation that goes into it, and and we have to admit it's it's not easy math um, that uh, that goes into it that it's been able to penetrate this far uh, so so far. And the other thing is that if you listened to the debate, you would get people who were you know the ever popular I'm declaring war on war headline, which. You know, comes out every oh, yeah. every three or days. what is it good for? I mean, come right, on. you know, and yeah, you know, we great another one, and the fact that people are at least paying attention to it enough to, you know, I, I I do worry that they're kind of you know recoiling against something that um, that's new and 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 you know it's it's a little tough to grasp, and I you know I, I would hope that they would keep an open mind on that, and that's that's really all that. Uh, that, that you really need because if you got a good idea 
an open mind will accept the idea. But um, but at least they're they're taking notice of it from from that point of view. And yeah, it's you know it's not uh, you know uh, adulation and and you know we're not uh, we, we haven't completely revolutionized baseball either. But um, but you know they're they're paying attention to it, and you get a lot more people you know players who are you know Glenn Perkins is saying hey you know I I know this and um, Zach Granke a few years ago talked about FIP and his. Uh, in his uh, Cy Young uh, stuff and and some of uh, some of the things of that nature, you know, it's it's something that is going to be a slow process. This is going to be a cultural change. You're talking about um, the way that baseball has been understood for several generations. You know, this is this is going to be on the level of cultural change as far as having having these stats really permeate the culture. And you know, it, we, I think it's a little. It's a little self-serving to uh, say how uh, why you know why aren't they listening to us? Well, you know, we're, we're really we're saying that a lot of stuff that they've grown up believing is is wrong, and even if we have good data, that's still something that's you know people don't immediately go oh yeah you know what I've been wrong all these years you're totally right. Right. And that's true. And I do think that comes back to also how the information has been presented. And you talk about people need to be more understanding, people need to be less condescending. And I think that that both of those things have been a problem with how some of the information has been has been thrown out there. And I do feel that part of the Jack Morris vote, not all of it, but I feel like part of the vote is an FU vote. I feel like part (laughs) of it is, I don't care what you say, you people are annoying assholes, I'm voting for him. I do feel like there's that element there, and I think that they've kind of been pushed enough that that, that response is almost justified. Well, you know, that's uh, there are days that you know I I I, I, say, I can't say I blame them. Um, you know, there's if you want to look at if you want to take the case of Morris and you want to look just at the numbers and you want to see, uh, you know, he he belongs in the Hall of Yeah, that guy was pretty good, but you know, not in the Hall of Fame, and and and. For one, I don't understand why that's such an insult. I mean, I would, I, I, I would love to, uh, to, to have gotten to the hall of yeah, I remember that guy. He was pretty good, you know. I got to the hall of who? But you know, you think about what a guy is who belongs in the hall of fame, and 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 then you start getting into okay, well, what was fame? And and if you think about it from a narrative point of view, Jack Morris has a hell of a narrative, and you know, I, the, you know, people make fun of the the game seven in, in 1991 and. And but that is a hell of a game, and, and and there's just no way around that. And you know, for some people, the Hall of Fame is about is more about kind of preserving those sorts of memories and um, you know discussions of um, you know a guy who um, you know they, they were popular. He was feared, or he was you know whatever whatever adjective you want to use there. Um, he was tenacious. We want to reward those guys, and. And that's you know that's that's a, a piece that comes from uh, from American culture from um, if we want to get into psychology of masculinity things of, things of that nature, but it is something that people use as their standard, and you know I think that that, that sabermetrics has been a little too dismissive of the way that people then view that that information if they're taking a look at it from the lens of you know, whether it's uh, tenacity or, um, you know, good for a long period of time or, you know, one shining moment or something like that, you know, that's something that, uh, that we have to respect. And in the case of, uh, of Morris, then, you know, people are going to vote that way. And, you know, I can't say that, uh, I can't sit here and say that that's a horrible, terrible thing to do. 
It's just that, um, you know, it's, you have to realize that what you're doing is you're rewarding certain cultural values over, um, uh, a, uh, uh, an, uh, over, you know, an empirical investigation of what actually wins the baseball game. You've been listening to Russell Carlton. Russell is a writer for Baseball Perspectives. You can give him a follow on Twitter at PizzaCutter4. Russell, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful.